Well, this is a picture of Admiral Robert Fitzroy. And Fitzroy is notable and famous for a number of reasons, one of which was he was the famous captain of the ship Beagle, which carried Charles Darwin around the world and most famously to the Galapagos Islands. But he's also famous um, for another reason. In the mid-19th century, of course, shipping was the the biggest industry in the world. Ships were literally crisscrossing every ocean, bringing goods and people from one place on the planet to another. And because there was all that activity and there was a lack of technological advancement, um, there was tragedy on the seas all the time. Thousands upon thousands of lives were lost every year. Cargo was lost. There was delays that affected commerce and nations. It was a huge issue to try and solve. At the same time, people were just beginning to study things like air pressure and barometers and how air pressure has something to do with the weather and storms. How could we figure out how they come together? And so Fitzroy became the chief of the meteorological office in London and was committed to trying to find a way about how these new technologies could impact the maritime world. One day he's sitting in his house in London and he's looking at his air pressure barometer and it's beginning to drop. At the same time, there's a ship sailing that's been sailing from Australia all the way to Liverpool and it's carrying hundreds of gold miners that had been working in the gold fields of Australia. And as they come into the Irish Sea around the British Isles, they encounter this huge storm and it begins to toss the ship and it runs the ship up the coast and Fitzroy is watching his barometer drop the pressure is dropping and so he knows that somewhere around Britain there is a there's a big storm but that's about all he knows until he hears the news that this ship carrying these miners had crashed upon the rocks and 450 people drowned and so he was devastated. He felt responsible. He, he knew something was happening, but he didn't have a way of telling anybody. There was no way to get the word out that there was a storm or where it was or what it meant. And so he devoted the rest of his life to trying to save lives at sea by studying and bringing about and eventually developing what we call a forecast, a weather forecast. And at that time, people were very skeptical about this kind of thing. To them, it sounded a little bit too much like witchcraft. Like, how could you predict the weather? It doesn't make sense. But he began to do it, and he began to take his forecasts, his reports to harbors and ports, and they began to see change, and the harbors and the ports would put up flags, and they would signal to these captains that were going out to sea that there was a storm approaching. Soon after, he would publish these forecasts in the newspaper and it took off and then later they were hourly reports when the radio came along historians have a hard time they say it's impossible to calculate how many lives were saved because of this new weather forecast we've begun a new sermon series here on the family last week and we're calling it family matters and there are so many important things and areas about family life that we could spend our time thinking about or talking about together we could think about marriage as we're doing today 
parenting, how we deal with conflict, how we're called to forgive one another. We can ask questions like, what does God have to say to us today in our current world, in our culture now about how we should approach family life? But here's the thing where I want us to start. When it comes to our family life, you and I are not stuck on a ship out in the middle of the sea without warnings or without a forecast, if you will. We're not left unprepared for the storms of life or the rocky seas. All of us, I know, are dealing with life and life is very hard and family life can be exceptionally hard. But God has given us, he's blessed us with his word, the scriptures that act like a forecast, if you will. There are things there to help us to see and direct us about how we are to live this life with our families that honors God and blesses us, that leads us. I truly believe that if you follow Jesus long enough and you engage his word long enough, you are going to see how what he gives us there leads our families into healthy places for our good. Now, we can't prepare for every weather event of life, right? Um, We can try to prepare for some things. We can look to God's word for help in our families in these things, but we can't prepare for illness or a diagnosis or the death of a family member. Those things come at us and they throw us, right? So we can't prepare for all things, but God has given us in his word even resources there to begin to find our way through even the things we're unprepared for with hope and with new direction. And so today we're talking about marriage. And marriage is a big subject to try and tackle in one sermon. So we're not gonna be able to say all that we want to, but I do wanna try to say a few things. So where can we start? And I know the first place that we probably should start is to recognize that all of us are in different places when it comes to marriage. All of us, wherever, whatever your story is, wherever you find yourself right now, some of us have been married for many, many years. Some of us are recently married. Some of you are divorced, remarried, widowed. Um, whatever it may be, even if you're single, Marriage has a lot to say to us in our current world. And it's particularly important for a community of faith, for a church, to understand no matter where we are in our own married life or single life, that we know what God has to say about marriage and what God wants us to do and wants us to think about marriage. And so today I want to ask all of us to consider how we can make marriage matter. And perhaps um, if we've been married for a while or we've become a bit disillusioned about marriage, how can we make marriage matter again? And so if you have a Bible, I wanna start by going all the way to the beginning and we looked at this briefly last week but I want you to turn to Genesis chapter two starting in verse 21. It'll be on the screen, but you can turn there if you'd like. Just these few verses of what God gives us to think about in marriage. 
Genesis 2 says this, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. This is Adam and Eve coming before God and becoming one, uniting in marriage. This is the picture that we are given early in the Bible of marriage, ordained by God, with God present there, given to us for our good, that we would be blessed, and then God even tells them to go out and through your marriage be a blessing to the world. And so if we're gonna come back to a starting place of how we can make marriage matter or make marriage matter again, this is where we have to start with what God desires marriage to be. And so on your outline, you can follow along, but I think by starting here, it leads us then to ask the question or to consider where our culture perhaps is shaping our expectations of marriage. This is where God begins. We first have to then think about where are we being shaped by the world around us and how is it impacting the way we think about marriage? I came across this article that originally ran in the Chicago Tribune a couple of years ago. It was written by a woman and it was titled What, um, what Wives Want. And so here are a few from that list. She writes, the first one is, don't ever lie to us, we always find out. If you're in a bad mood and we're going to assume, we're going to assume it's our fault, so tell us what's bothering you. Quit complaining about your boss, just find another job already. Sunday is usually, this is a big one, Sunday is usually the only day we relax and rest, so be flexible about that all-day sports thing. Buy yourself some decent clothes. Pay attention, we like to give clues like Susie and Bob just tried a new restaurant, which means why don't you ever take us anywhere? <laughs> Later she says, when we say something, it's necessary for you to respond at the very minimum, nod your head. If you only knew how much a tender word or a thoughtful act, an unexpected gift means to us, you would do it and your life would improve exponentially. When no one's home, stand in front of a mirror and practice this until you can say it in public. I was wrong. <laughs> and finally, after you've mastered that, work on I'm sorry. Now, we see things like this all the time, these kind of lists, right, funny or not, especially social media is just ablaze with these kinds of things that we're kind of interacting with, right? And I think we're all interested in Things like that, you know, that tell us about relationships or marriage because we're all looking for some kind of help, right? We're all kind of desperate to find something that we could take back that may help us. But I think when we do that, because we're in such need for help, if we're not careful, without even knowing it, we can begin to be shaped by the culture around us more than what God wants for marriage. We begin to pick up all of these things and we're formed by them more 
than we realize. And I think the reason why we're looking for all of that help is because, as we've already said, life is hard. And marriage is really hard. And we're all being stretched in ways, in some way, in our married lives or in our family relationships right now. Uh, Some of you may be facing significant financial hardship right now and it is killing your marriage. Some of you may be facing an illness and it's impacting your married life. Some of you may have a desire to have a child and it hasn't happened yet. It's impacting your relationship in some way. Some of you may have issues with your children and it's causing strain on your closest relationship. Some of you may be a believer but your spouse is not a believer in Jesus and so you come to church on your own and that is a very hard journey to walk. Because we're all looking for help, I think we are susceptible to being shaped and influenced and formed by the culture's expectations of marriage. It's very easy for that to happen to us. And so today we want to identify where that may be happening and then turn our ships, if you will, back to what God desires for us. And we could say a ton about how our culture may be shaping us when it comes to marriage. I just wanted to say two things and we could go on to think about many more another time. But the first is this. I think we are shaped much more than we realize by our culture's message that marriage is first about your own personal happiness. That marriage is meant to make me personally happy. That it's one of the tools that I have in life's bag to make my life fulfilled or to make my life what I want it to be. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is that once we're unhappy for a period of time, if it's just a tool in the bag that we use for our happiness, well, we will get rid of that tool. When we're no longer happy, it will be easy. A season goes by where we are not happy enough. A year, a two, the circumstances get out of control. And before we realize it, we, it becomes easier and easier for us to see how marriage uh, can matter less to us. Our marriages can matter less and less and the other things in our life that do make us happy can begin to matter more and more. One of my favorite writers, Jamie Smith, wrote this and I I love this quote, I wanna read it to you. He says, cultural forces extol the alleged thrill of sexual escapades, the novelty of one night stands and triumphs of unending libidinal conquests. What they can't know is the unspeakable joy when a woman who slept beside you for 24 years rolls over in the morning and says, I love you. Imagine how mind-blowing that is. This woman who knows everything about you, whom you've disappointed a thousand times, is still here. We're different, dealing with different messages than that, though, in our culture that ultimately if this marriage is no longer making us happy, well then there's nothing wrong with finding someone else that will make us happy. So that's the first thing, that one way that I think 
we're being shaped by our culture when it comes to marriage. The second way, I think, is that our culture is shaping us more than we realize to believe that marriage is about all of the other circumstances of life. What do I mean by that? Let me give you a couple of examples. For instance, we can begin to easily think, well, if we could just get our finances in order, then my marriage will get better. Or if my kids were just better behaved, and if he wasn't getting in trouble so much, well, then our marriage would be better. If my husband got a new job or if we were able to move to a new place, then our marriage would get better. If we could have a child or have another child, then our marriage would be healthier and get better. And before we realize it, um, what becomes the most important thing about our marriage is all of the other circumstances surrounding it and not the marriage itself. And I don't know how many of you have seen some of the trends that are happening in our country when it comes to marriage. A lot of the studies that are showing, of course, less people in our country are getting married in general. But also with that, people are getting married later and later in life. The average age now for the first marriage is creeping towards 30 years old, higher than it's ever been. And I think one of the reasons that's happening is because our culture for a long time now has been saying, you know, you should be really, really mature before you get married. Or you should have all of your finances in order, you should be a homeowner, you should do all these things, and then get married, right? Or maybe you should try out living together. Maybe you wanna kind of go on a trial basis with this person before you consider marrying them for the rest of your life. And I think that too many Christians have bought into those things as well. We've thought the same thing, where kind of the American dream has begun to dictate when and who we marry more than the Bible or what God wants. And I want you to hear me say, is it wise to be growing towards maturity before we get married? Yes, of course it is. Is it wise to have good conversations about how we're gonna spend our money and our finances before we get married? Yes, of course it is. And of course we believe that you shouldn't live with someone before you get married. But you see, we can easily let money and jobs and all these other things tell us what to think about marriage. And in fact, I'll go as far to say this, I think that marriage actually helps you mature. It teaches you how you're gonna handle your finances, right? It matures you relationally in all those different ways. And so if we're gonna think differently than perhaps our culture thinks about marriage, then the first thing that we need to get serious about understanding is that marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. Marriage is a covenant not a contract. In Genesis 2, what we see is God bringing a man and a woman together before him. Marriage is this commitment of two people before God, a commitment to him being at the center of marriage, that God is involved in every detail. And our commitment as married people is to him first, even before our spouse. We make those types of promises when we get married. If God is involved, he is at the very center. But if marriage is not a covenant, if it is a contract, 
well, then it can be pretty easy to break that contract, right? If all of a sudden our personal happiness level is too low, well, then we can break away. We can begin to see a way out. But if we're going to make our marriages matter or matter again, then I want to encourage you with this. And it's a simple truth, but it is at the very heart of Christian marriage that God, God has to be at the very center of your married life. That's what making a covenant in marriage before God is all about. That God is at the center of your lives. And when we begin to understand that, I think, then all of these other issues that we are dealing with or that we're facing, they begin to find their proper order underneath that first truth. And so if we're gonna make our marriage, marriages matter, we have to really first identify maybe where we're being shaped a bit too much by the world and culture around us. But secondly, I want us to see today that if we're gonna make them matter, we need to lean into our unique vows. Lean into, push into the vows that we have made in marriage. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul gives us one of the most profound passages on marriage. Tells us all about husbands and wives and how they are to view and treat each other. Pastor Dudley mentioned this briefly last week and talked about the roles in a family. And I want to read this passage to you and just just notice some of the powerful things that are there. Paul writes this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now there is so much here. Uh, We won't be able to dive into all of it, but what I want to say to you is just a couple of things. First, Paul tells us that husbands and wives are meant to submit to one another that there is this mutual submission to each other out of what? Reverence for Christ. We're called to live that type of life with one another out of reverence for Jesus. Yes, there are roles. Paul mentions those. The husband is, is meant to be, the husband and father are meant to be the head of the family. But there is this mutual submission that takes place here. There is this back and forth, husbands and wives, honoring each other, blessing each other, loving and respecting each other. This is what marriage is meant to be. And then in verse 25, husbands are called to love their wives, how? As Christ loved the church. And then Paul raises the ante and says, as he gave his life for the church. Husbands, you are to live in such a way that you are laying down your life sacrificially for your wife in every way. Isn't that amazing? And the vows that we make to one another at a wedding, the things that we say to each other, are rooted in what we just read there. 
that there is going to be this mutual love and respect, this back and forth. And if it's a Christian wedding, then you're gonna make all of those vows and those commitments before God, with him involved. We commit ourselves in faith to him and to one another that he would help us in this married life. When I have the opportunity to officiate a wedding, I usually give a a short sermonette, if you will, some point in the service, and I tell the congregation that this couple today are in a way acting out before you the very story of the gospel. You are seeing it on display. That we believe that Jesus is our ultimate bridegroom who has purchased us, who has bought us with his own blood to be his radiant, holy, spotless bride. And a wedding communicates that. It tells us the story that we all need to hear for ourselves routinely. That without Jesus' work, then we are left in sin. That's been the story of all humanity from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, they leave that early, sin, that early scene in Genesis 2 and they go on their own way. And that brings havoc and destruction and sin into their life and their family and into the world. And we are left with that as well. The scriptures tell us that in that type of life with sin, there's no way back to God. We need something. We need God to come and make a way for us. And the bad news of the gospel is that if we remain in that, then God, because he is holy and because he is just, has to punish our sin. But the good news of the gospel is that he has come to us on his own as the great bridegroom. He has sent Jesus to us to live the perfect life and to show us how we were meant to live with God and live with one another. And he becomes the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that we can be made spotless, blameless, holy. And his resurrection breathes new and eternal life into us so that we have this hope that one day when he returns, we will be a part of this wonderful wedding ceremony that the scriptures tell us about. We as his bride, the church, being prepared for him. That is our hope. That is your Christian identity if you believe that that has happened to you, that you yourself have been made holy and blameless in his sight to stand before God as his beloved. Um, If that's true, then we can lean into our vows and find our identity in Christ. No other place, not a pursuit of happiness or another person or even our spouse the Christian finds their identity in Christ that the most true thing about you is what Jesus has done for you what he has made you that becomes the basis from which we live our married life and in the build-up to the weddings that I get to officiate I usually have the opportunity to sit with couples for four or five sessions for premarital counseling. And very early on, after hearing their stories and and all that, I I take them to a place in the scriptures uh, in the book of Galatians, in chapter three. And I want them to see this very fundamental thing that should be at the foundation of their marriage. And it's simply this, 
that you are a child of the king. That you yourself, husband or wife, soon to be husband, soon to be wife, are a child of the king. And so we look at this passage. It says this from Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's that picture, the wedding again. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we read that and I ask Jim, I say, Jim, what does this say about Natalie? And then he answers. And then I say, Natalie, what does this say about Jim? And then she answers. But the answer is that each of you are a child of the king, son or daughter of God. And if you place your faith in Christ, if your identity is in Christ, then you are that. You are a child of God, an heir of his promise, which means this, that when you look at your husband or your wife, you are looking at a daughter or a son of God. Think about that. And so I try to encourage them to always think that way. And I want to encourage you to always think that way. That no matter what is going on in your marriage, no matter how difficult, how strained, the gospel gives us the power to lean into our vows, to lean into what we have committed and see our spouse as God's child. The power is there to do that. Now that may seem all well and good when things are going well, right? But when we have been hurt or betrayed, wounded by our spouse in some way or disappointed, can we still find the way to see that person as God's child? Loved by God, prized by God, his son or his daughter, if we can, then I truly believe that our marriages are going to matter deeply and perhaps matter again for the first time in a long time. And so first we have to identify maybe where we're being shaped too much by the cultural world around us when it comes to marriage and then we have to lean into what we believe and what we have committed to believing. But finally this morning I want us to see if we're gonna make marriage matter again we have to recognize that marriage isn't about you. That it's not about you at the center of things. And listen, if you've been married for any length of time, even if you're in your first year still, you're going to soon learn that marriage is a clear invitation to confront your self-centeredness, right? All those desires for personal happiness that we have, all of those things that we think will fill us up, marriage confronts them all and I think in time shows us that there's a better way. There's a better way to live. Funny example of this, before I was married, I lived with a couple of friends and uh, our place was a disaster. (laughs) It was a nightmare. It was everything you'd think about three guys in their mid-20s living together, right? And I started dating my wife when we were living there and you're trying to make it look reasonable enough. 
But uh, after being married, for the years that we've been married now, um, I have come to love and appreciate order, right? A house where things are put where they're supposed to be put, and you can count on that. And I actually begin to, I love that now. I, I crave it, I want it. And so yesterday I went to a friend's house, some single friend's house, and I was confronted again by what my place used to look like, and I couldn't take it. It's just, how do we do this? How do we live like this, right? So marriage for me, in one way, has shaped me in that way, right? It's made me be considerate of the people that I live with in new ways. And a more serious example, when I met my wife, she was, and she still is, the single most compassionate person that I've ever known. And compassion is not a word, especially before I was married, that I am necessarily always associated with, unfortunately. But being around her and being shaped by her and being married to her over the years has led to me being more compassionate, I think. It's made me confront my self-centeredness. It's made me begin to ask questions about how other people are moving through life or what we're going to help them, how we're going to help them move through life. We're invited to confront our self-centeredness through our marriage relationships. Where do we get the power to do it? And the answer is we get it from Jesus. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 5. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And out of that, living for him, we begin to actually live for others more than ourselves also, including our spouses. This is what Christ has done for you. And so now we live for him and for the sake of others. And that becomes our concern more than our own self-centeredness. And so we confront our self-centeredness if we recognize that marriage is not about us. But we also commit to outserve each other. Now this is what I think the strength of Christian marriage in our world can be today. That if in our marriages we can commit to outserve one another, we begin to display something completely different to the people around us. It takes work though. It takes remembering that what is at the center of our marriage is not me but God, and then through seeing him as the center, begin to see my spouse as incredibly important, as the person that God has called me to serve. And so as we close this morning, I wanna leave you with an exercise, okay? And if you're not married, I want you to do this also. You can do it with uh, maybe a, a very close friend or a family member, but I want all of you to sit down tonight. It has to be tonight. Okay, Because if it's not tonight, it won't be tomorrow night or the other nights after that. And I want you to take these three steps. First step is I want you to ask your spouse, what can I do to serve you? What can I do to serve you? And then the second step is this. If within reason, if within reason, do what your spouse requests. Do it. And then the third step is to repeat often. 
And I want to say this, 14 days, two weeks, give it a run of committing to serving your spouse in a committed, intentional way. But ultimately today, as we do those types of things, whatever it may be, I want us to see that if our identity is found in Christ, then we are pushed out to see our spouse, to see the the people closest to us, our family relationships, in the way that God wants us to see them. To get past our the ways that culture is kind of flooding us and to get past the desire we have to be personally happy, to confront our self-centeredness, to outserve each other. That's what finding your identity in Jesus as a child of God pushes us all to do. I think we can do that as we grow with Jesus. And if we do, I, I trust that we would see marriages in our church truly matter. And maybe for some of you, matter again. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have given us a forecast, if you will. You've given us your word that tells us how we should think about something so important like marriage. How we should have you at the center, how everything should revolve around that. God, thank you for reminding us that first of all, our marriages are meant to bring glory to you. And through that, we are blessed and the people around us are blessed. God, I don't know all the stories of the people in this room. I don't know the stories of the marriages in this room. I do know that there are some marriages here that are hurting There are people here that are wondering if it's time to give up. And I just pray that somehow you would do a miracle and that you would restore and you would reconcile, Lord, these relationships that we care about, friends of ours, family members of ours. Lord, help us all to see that first we are your children. And may that give us a new hope, perhaps. May it give us a new direction towards one another to serve, to love each other well, and to honor you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.